Good morning. He's a good God, isn't he? I mean, uh, I tell you what, let's just jump in, what you say. Why don't you go ahead and take your Bible and turn to, let's start Exodus 25, all right? Now, we've been talking about meeting God, a meeting place for God, and God's heart to meet. And we kind of set this premise. God has always desired and provided a place for him to meet his people. God has always desired and provided a place for him to meet with his people. It's in his heart to meet. He wanted to meet with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He did meet with them and walk with them. It has never been God's heart to hide. It was always man who was hiding from God. After Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. Whenever God revealed himself at Mount Sinai and wanted to meet with the people, it was the people who said, no, we don't want to meet with you. We want Moses to go meet with you and then come back and tell us what you say. But it was always God's heart to meet with his creation and to meet with man. And as we've been looking at this, we've been reminded that everything that we've covered so far, like Chuck said, is a shadow. It's a type. It's a symbol of what the reality is that we experience. And so we find that when Adam and Eve hid, it was God that pursued them. He wanted to meet with them. Whenever he brought the children of Israel into the desert after being freed from the bondage of Egypt, it was God that showed up on Mount Sinai and said, I want to meet with the people. I want them to come near me. It was God who put it in the heart of Moses to build the tabernacle so that there might be a dwelling place of the manifest presence of God. It didn't confine the presence of God. But it was the place God chose to meet with his people, and he provided the means to do that. And then it was God that put it in the heart of David to build a temple. And although David never built it, his son built it. It was God saying again, I want to meet with you. I want a place, a place, a designated place, a place that you can point to, not ethereal, Not this understanding that I'm omnipresent, I'm everywhere. That is true, but you're not. You can't be everywhere. And so I'm going to be revealed to you, expressed to you in a particular place, a knowable place that you can come and meet me and know me in that place. And so that's what we've been talking about. Solomon built the temple. The glory of God built the temple. And uh, I asked you last week to look at what took place in a meeting with God. So we want to just review some of these you're gonna, we've done, seen already, but I want us to review because we're getting right on the edge, okay? We're getting right on the edge of what this is all about. First thing I want you to see that God picked a place to meet man, to speak to man, and commune with man from that place. Look in Exodus 25, verse 21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you. And the King James has a phrase in there that's not in the New American Standard that I think, whether it's in the Hebrew or not, I don't know, but it helps with the understanding of what that means. He says, there I will meet with you and commune with you. I will engage you. I will interact with you. There I will meet with you and commune with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. It was a place to meet God. It was a specific place to meet God that God wanted to meet. Now, here's why that was important. It was from this place that God gave instructions. 
It was from this place that God gave his commandments. Look what he said at the very last. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. God gave instructions and direction and commandments from this place where he abided. All right? That's important. Hang on to that. If you wanted to know what God wanted, it was found here. If you wanted to know what God wanted, this is the place that you go to find it. And to start with, it was the place where God defined what was necessary for you to even meet him. You see, you couldn't come to God on your own merit. That's what all those sacrifices were about. Everything in Leviticus, I mean, there was a sacrifice for everything. They were killing everything. The temple was flooded with blood from all of the sacrifices that took place. And all of that was God saying, you can't come to me on your own merit. What are you coming for me to me with? What qualifies you to come to me? And it was in this place that we discovered what qualified us to come and meet God. In Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons tried to come under different conditions. And in Leviticus chapter 10, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. God had commanded what was necessary to bring before him in order to meet with him. Aaron's sons had a different idea about it. They said, we're going to bring something different. We're going to bring what we like. We're going to bring what pleases us. We're going to bring what satisfies us, and we're going to expect you, God, to be satisfied with what I bring you. But they didn't bring what God commanded. The results wasn't good. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. God saying, what you bring produces nothing but death. What you think I ought to have brings nothing but death. It is here that you will find out from me what will qualify you to come before me. And all of those sacrifices in Leviticus, he's telling us that. It didn't free us from our sin, but it covered our sin. Because you see, the shedding of an animal's blood can't cover the sin of a human being. It has to be like I mean, excuse me, the, the shedding of the blood of an animal can't forgive the sin of a human being. Only the blood of another human being is satisfactory to forgive the sins of a human being. But it did cover it till the next year when they could bring another sacrifice. And he, these guys disregarded what God said to bring and decided they'd bring something that'd make them feel good. Then Moses said to Aaron, That didn't work out so well. Well, no, what he said was, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, but those who come near, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. Moses was saying, you want to honor the Lord? Give him what he wants. The Lord's not honored by me giving him what I want. The Lord's honored by me giving him what he wants. And for me to try to come and say, God, I'm here. I've done real good this week. I haven't yelled at my wife. I haven't kicked the cat. I haven't, you know, I've done pretty good this week. I have a right to be here. God says, that's not what I'm looking for. That's not what I'm looking for. I have provided a means for you to be here. But it's not your effort. It's not your works. It's not your sacrifice. It's not your offering. And I love this last sentence. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. I bet he did. I bet he didn't argue one bit about it. So it was at this place that we determine what God wants. It was at this place that we determine what God wants us to do. 
I couldn't, I, you know, I could talk about it with all the other priests. I could talk about it with all the other leaders. But really the only place I was going to find out what God wanted me to do was at this meeting place and in the presence of God. It was from this place that they learned what God was like and what he desired of them. This is where they found out what God was like. This is what they found out what God wanted. Now, before you label him as some kind of a tyrant, some kind of a crybaby who insists on his way, know this. He lives with the full knowledge and understanding that his will and his will alone is the only thing in the universe that will bring wholeness to people's lives. He is the only thing in the universe with integrity, wholeness. And he lives with the understanding that what you offer may make you feel good, but it's not going to bring wholeness to your life. What you present for me as your qualification for be here may make you feel self righteous, right in your own self, but it's not going to bring wholeness and health to your life. God lives with that awareness, and I am so thrilled that he is not capricious or easily swayed, not easily, not swayed by our emotions, not swayed by our nagging, not swayed by our planning. I love that saying somebody says, man plans, God laughs. God's not impressed. We don't have a thing to give him to qualify us to be there. But in his presence, we find out what it is that he has for us. So this was the place where God met man, learned what God wanted from him, learned what God was like, and was communing with him. Now, another thing is, this wasn't all just a place of sacrifice. It wasn't all just a place of offering. Look with me in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. It was also a place of celebration. And celebration started even before the ark was in the tabernacle, even before the ark was in the temple, way back whenever the ark had been captured and David had retrieved it and brought it from the house of Obed-Edom to be in the temple There was celebration taking place before the presence of the Lord. Look in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, uh, verse 16. It says, Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, I'm sorry, loud-sounding cymbals, okay? We want the symbol to be real quiet. Loud sounding symbols to raise sounds of joy. Isn't that cool? Now look in verse uh, 27. Now David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and this other guy, the leader of the singing with the singers. David also wore an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud-sounding cymbals, with harps, and with lyres. Now look in chapter chapter 16, verse 4. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Verse 5, Asaph the chief, and second to him, these other guys, with musical instruments, harps, lyres. Also, Asaph played loud. They keep bringing up that loud-sounding cymbal, you know? Well, I, I don't worship that way. Look in chapter 23. He gets the ark, he gets the, the temple built. First Chronicles chapter 23, <clears throat> verse 23. Uh, chapter 23, verse 1. And when David reached old age, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. 
And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Look at verse 5. 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. Now, David didn't get to build the temple, so he wasn't he wasn't designating these guys for his time frame. He was designating these guys for the time frame when Solomon built the temple. This is what's happened when the temple's built. I'm designated 4,000 men to these instruments which David gave them for what? To give praise. Now look in chapter 25, verse 7. <clears throat> well, let's, let's begin in verse uh, uh, 1, chapter 25. Moreover, David and his commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and Haman and of Jeduthun, who were, the, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And the number of those who performed their service was, and he lists their name. Now look in verse 6. All these were under the direction of their father to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres, for the service of the house of God. Look in verse 7. Their number who were trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives, all who were skillful, was 288. And if you read the rest of that, they took these 288 men and they broke them up into 24 praise teams. And their job was to worship and celebrate and to rejoice with musical instruments what God had done. It wasn't just sacrifices. It wasn't just this. Now, it was used to usher in the glory of God. All right? But I want you to notice where they played. They played in the holy place. Now watch. The temple is made up of three parts. The outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The singers and the instruments were in the holy place. They were not in the Holy of Holies. There was no instrument in the Holy of Holies. As a matter of fact, Psalm says, let all the earth keep silent. The Lord is in his holy temple. What happened in there? Silence. Silence. It took place in the, in the holy place, but it didn't take place in the holy of holies. Mark that. Note that. You'll be tested on that later on. Okay? All right. Let's see. Another thing that happened here, Exodus 29. Because God's presence dwelt here, the building, its contents, And all those who went in were consecrated, were set apart to him. Look in Exodus 29, verse 42. It says, It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priest to me. Without the presence of God, this was nothing more than a nice building with a lot of pretty trinkets inside of it. But when the glory of God showed up, his presence set apart every single thing in there for him, okay? Without it, it was just another creation of man. Without it, it was nice. Without his presence being there, it was just another building. But with his presence there, it was consecrated. It was set apart for him. Now, notice what he said to do. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priest to me. What'd they do when they got in there? They ministered to the Lord. I just can't imagine Aaron or one of his sons or one of the high priests walking out of the Holy of Holies 
and saying, just didn't get nothing out of that. That just didn't ring my bell. I've been going in there every week, every time I was appointed, I've been going in there and I ain't got nothing out of it. We have made ministering to the Lord ministering to us. And we measure it by how what I get out of it and never consider that the Lord's getting what he told us to bring him and he's pleased. I can't imagine what I'm saying. I ain't going no more. Forget that. I, I didn't get the warm fuzzies in there. I didn't get the word I wanted. I didn't get what. When did ministering to the Lord become about us getting something from him? Now, granted, when we minister to the Lord, <clears throat> one of the byproducts is we are blessed. We will prosper. But it's not the focus. The minute we focus on what I get out of it, I become the center of worship, and that's not worship before the Lord. <clears throat> what they do there? They minister to the Lord, and they came to know him as God. Exodus 33, God's presence among his people set the people apart from all the other nations. Now, this is where Moses and God had that conversation. God had had it with the people. He said, that's it. I'm just going to let them all die in the wilderness, and I'll take you to the promised land. And Moses intercedes in verse 12. Exodus 33, verse 12. <clears throat> Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I've found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, by the way, these grumbling, griping, complaining people, they're your people. Okay? You see Moses' tack here? <laughs> they're, they're your people, by the way, God. And he said, God said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. God, if you don't go with us, kill us now. That sounds to me like a heart that is desperate for the presence of God. God, I want you. Yeah, the promised land's wonderful. There's, you know, great things over there, and it's a beautiful place, and it's going to be awesome. But you know what? If you're not there, if you're not leading there, what good is it? How often have we set this goal in our mind, whether it's prestige or whether it's a house or whether it's a bank account or whether it's security or whether it's notoriety or whether it's fame, and then we got it, and it Tasted bad. Why? Because we may have gotten it without his presence. He'll let us have it to let us realize it's his presence that brings wholeness, not these things. And Moses said, God, if you're not going, don't lead us up from here. For how then, verse 16, how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by you going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? How, what's going to make us different? Here's what made them different. It wasn't their size. It wasn't their number. It wasn't their talents. It wasn't their strength. It wasn't their accomplishments. It wasn't their army. It was the presence of God. That's what made them different. Folks, it is imperative that we come to understand without the manifest presence of God in the body of Christ, it is nothing more than a religious lion's club or masons or kiwanas. 
And I'm not picking on those groups. They have their place. But I'm telling you, the place for the body of Christ is to house the manifest glory of God. And if the glory of God is not present, we are missing what God has us here for. God's presence among his people set them apart from everywhere else. Um, Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 12. All transactions with God took place in his presence. Deuteronomy chapter 12. All transactions with God took place in his presence and not in his memory. Look in verse 5. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come. You shall bring the burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithe, contributions, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings which the Lord has got, your God has blessed you. Transactions with God, business with God, was intended to take place in the presence of God, not merely in the memory of God. Well, what's the purpose of a memory? The purpose of the memory is to remind you to live in his presence. And just to remember that the purpose of your memory is to remind you that he rose from the grave. The purpose of your memory is not to celebrate the history of it, but the purpose of your memory is to remind you that he is alive now. And if we just live in the memory, we have no power, we have no presence, we have no glory, we don't have him here. And so anything that transacted with God was to take place in his presence. It was not a memory, was not a substitute for his presence. Don't stop with remembering. At what point it removes, at that point, at the point that I stop with remembering, and that's all that matters. Oh, remember this. I remember this. That, that kills me. You know, we used to, in churches I grew up with, we, every once in a while we'd have a, what's your favorite verse? And it was amazing how many people had the same verse from 1903. Nothing was new. Nothing was relevant. They hadn't heard the Lord since then. That's my favorite verse. It's what's present now. It's living in his presence, living in his awareness. <clears throat> and the moment we stop with just remembering, at that point, it becomes a religion and not a relationship. That's it. What if you said to your wife, <clears throat> I love you, darling, but I've bought you a house. You, a house. I want you to go live in that house. I'm going to live in this house. And from now on, I'm going to live in the memory of our wonderful relationship. How do you think that'd work? Your relationship would cease. In some cases, your life would cease. God says, I want to live in your presence. I want to be aware of you. I want you to know me. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 17, and we touched on this one already. Disputes were settled in his presence. Deuteronomy 17, verse 8, if in any case it's too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Verse 10, you should do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses. How do we know firsthand how to resolve conflicts in our life? How do we know firsthand how to resolve this tension we have in our own mind? Do we or don't we? Do I or don't I? Where do I? Re- it may not be a conflict between you and a brother or you and a sister. It's just a conflict that goes on in your own head. Well, I'm weighing the pluses and the minuses. Well, I, that's nice, but doesn't always work out, does it? How do I determine this conflict in my heart? How did they determine here? You go where God is. And when you find out what God's perspective is, it's the final word. No more need for discussion. No more need to ask. This, you know, is what God has for your life. Conflicts were settled there. 
Second uh, Chronicles chapter six. This one's kind of a mind blower. I know some people have a hard time getting their mind around this, but you'll see why it's important later on. Second Chronicles chapter. Uh, let's do seven. Second Chronicles chapter seven. His presence, the place where his presence abided was the avenue through which all prayers touched heaven. Okay? Look in Second Chronicles 7. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, <clears throat> if I send pestilence among my people, My people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. This place. This is the conduit for heaven. This is the place that when we touch, we know that prayer is going to make it to the throne of God because it was prayed where God was at. This was not Solomon's temple. This was God's temple. All right. Now, I want you to take note of those things and remember these things. Here's what I want you to get. For 410 years... Man interacted with a loving, holy father in this place. 410 years, this was the place. This was the place where God abode. This was the place where man met God. This was the place where we found out about God. This is the place where our prayers were answered. This is the place where we got direction. This is the place where God says, I am here. If you want to meet me, meet me here. 410 years. But God knew man. Even before the temple was built, God made this statement about Israel and what they would do when they got into Canaan. Now, bear in mind, this is even before the temple's been built. This is even before the glory of God has shown up in the presence in the, in the, in the, in the, represented by the Ark of the Covenant. This is even before then. In Deuteronomy, they're still in the promised land. God's giving them instructions about what to do in the promised land. And he knew what they would do, and he declared to them what they would do in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Look over there. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, The time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to die and and lie down with your fathers. And this people will rise up and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going. They will forsake me. They will break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Hadn't even left Egypt yet. And God says, I know these guys. I know what they're going to do. 
I'm cautioning them. I've given them every caution. I've told them when they get over there, destroy every high place, destroy every place of worship, destroy every altar to where there is nothing left but me. I have given commandments. I have given direction. I have given instruction. I have committed my presence to them, and yet I know what they're going to do. They're going to rebel against me. They're going to pursue other gods. And some might listen to that, well, that's kind of a setup. If God said it would happen, then they had no choice. Remember Jeremiah 18, chapter 5, verse 5? Jeremiah 18, 5 says this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so were you in my hand of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I promised to bless it. There is always a choice. At any point, Israel could have repented. At any point, they could have repented, but they didn't do it. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel prophesied how the glory of God would leave the temple. He had a vision. And he says in that chapter 10, verse 2, And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from heaven, from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Look in verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, left the mercy seat, left the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God rose and moved to the door of the temple. And the temple was filled with a cloud, and the cloud was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Look in verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Verse 19. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. It left the mercy seat, it went to the door of the threshold, and then from there it goes to the east gate. Now look in verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city, and that's Mount Olives. Here's Ezekiel telling you, guys, you're going to have plenty of chances to repent. When you see the glory of God begin to move, you need to repent. When there's an indication that the glory of God is fixing to leave, you need to repent. It rose from the ark. It went to the threshold of the meeting place. It went from the meeting place to the east gate, and then it went to the Mount of Olives. But something else happened here. Ezekiel prophesied the leaving of God's glory gradually and ultimately completely. He also prophesied what would come. Now, this is awesome. Right in the middle of this, right in the middle of Ezekiel saying, guys, God's leaving. If you don't repent, God's leaving. He reveals to us what's coming. Look in verse 19. And I will give them one heart, put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances, do them and do them, and they will be my people and I shall be their God. Ezekiel was prophesying to what was going to happen to Israel, 
but he also prophesied what God was going to do in the future. I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to put my spirit in them. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to give them not a heart. Remove the heart of stone and we'll give them a heart of flesh. Now, soon after Ezekiel made this prophecy, and soon after the glory departed, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and took Israel captive into Babylon. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about. He said, soon after, the glory had already parted. The glory of God had already left, which left Israel completely vulnerable because God wasn't there to bear them up on wings. God wasn't there to go before them and fight. God wasn't there to be the victor. God wasn't there. And Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple in about 597, 587 B.C. and took Israel captive. The glory of God had gone, and the temple was destroyed. Now listen, for 600 years, there is no mention of the ark. There is no mention of the glory of God. There is no mention of the manifest presence of God, and there is no mention of any place on earth where man can meet God. Even when the third temple or the second temple was built, the glory of God never abided there. The ark was gone. The glory was gone. We don't know where the ark was. As as Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and destroyed the temple, you make a record of the of the, uh, the, the goods that you capture. You make a list of all the things that you captured from that enemy. The ark is never mentioned. We don't know where it went, but we know this, God's presence left. And for 600 years, the ark was gone, the glory was gone, his presence was gone. Israel had turned their back on God by worshiping who and where they wanted. And God withdrew his presence. He was still everywhere, okay? Him leaving the, <clears throat> the, the temple did not in any way diminish his omnipresence. He was still everywhere. But remember, him being everywhere has no bearing on our relationship with him because we can't be everywhere. And as long as we're trying to meet God in the everywhere, he'll become the God of nowhere. We can't find him. We don't know where he's at. 600 years. And they came in and they built another temple. They were proud of it. The young guys were thrilled by it. The old guys, not so much. They'd seen Solomon's temple. But then it got word that the glory of this temple was going to be greater than the glory of the Old Old Temple. But the problem was it had a glory of its own. It still didn't have the glory of God. It still never had the presence of God. And for 600 years, the heavens are brass. God is absent. There's no place to meet him. His glory is gone. His presence is gone. But then, but then, look with me in Luke chapter 1. But then, here's a priest. He's going through the ritual. He's ministering in the temple. His lot has been picked. It's his turn to minister. Now notice this. The religious exercises went on long after the glory of God had gone. For 600 years, the glory of God's been gone. For 600 years, the presence of God has been lifted. And they're still going in this temple doing their thing. And look in chapter 1, verse 8. Now it happened, here he's talking about uh, uh, Zacharias. Now, it happened 
that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the presence of the angel, and fear gripped him. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is yet in his mother's womb. Now, I want to tell you something. I don't know what your theology is about the Holy Spirit and being filled, but I want to tell you something. That contradicts everybody's theology. Here's a baby in the womb of Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. And here's what he's going to do. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people. What's the word next? Prepared. Have we seen that before? Have we seen God saying to the people, get prepared. Sent Moses down to prepare the people. Something's coming. You got to be prepared if you're going to meet me. I'm sending John. He's going to come and turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now look in chapter 3. Elizabeth has her child. Zechariah has this prophecy. Declares this word. Uh, John the Baptist goes into the into his ministry. And uh, chapter three. Now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of those two places, <clears throat> in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make way the path of the Lord. Make ready the way of the Lord. Here's God's presence abiding in the tabernacle. Here's God's presence abiding in the temple. They rebel against him. God withdraws his presence, and for 600 years he's not there. And now he brings this guy out, and he says, this is your job. Prepare the way of the Lord. What does that say? Historically it says God is about to do something. He's been gone. He's about to do something. What's he going to do? Get the people ready. Prepare the people for it. That was John the Baptist's job. God hadn't been there, but something's about to happen. Now, your homework is to find out what happened. Okay? Find out what happened. Now, listen, let me just remind you, it was never about a building. They had a building. God chose not to dwell in it. That building was the second temple. Zacharias went into the second temple. God wasn't there. He was still going through the ceremony. God didn't want to live there. He didn't live there. But he sent someone to prepare the way of the Lord because something is about to happen. And what's about to happen is the reality of all of the symbolism that we have covered up to this point. 
Every single bit of it was a type, was a shadow, was a symbol. And now the reality is coming. And it's going to be here. See what God does. That ought to make a backslidden Presbyterian shout. I mean, that's good stuff. Okay? So your homework, what happened? What happened? Any questions? We got through before 12. Folks, listen, this is awesome stuff. I'm going somewhere with this that I wanted to start at. And I felt like the Lord said, nope. We need to understand what the meeting place of God is about and how significant it is. And we need to see what these people had to go through to see and meet with God. And it was never about a building. We spend millions of dollars, and I've been, and I'm okay with going, but we spend millions of dollars going where Jesus was. And we neglect where he is. That's living in memory and not in his presence. All right? Anybody have any other questions? It's good to see you this morning. I see we've got some new ones this week, and people are getting a little more comfortable with coming out. And uh, good to have all you guys on Zoom. Well, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we just welcome you for your presence, for being here with us today. Teach us how to live in your presence, the awareness that you are here, that you love us, and that you care for us. Open the eyes of our heart that we can see all the riches that are deposited in Christ. We just turn our hearts to you and ask you to just speak to us through Scripture, speak to us directly, speak through us through one another, and let us see that your heart is still to meet with your people and to be known by them. And we bless you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.